Father, we're seeking to be overcomers. We pray that you would give us the strength to trust in you. It is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says, says the Lord of hosts. You've given us principles that if we live within these principles, you've, you'll make our minds clearer naturally because you made them to be this way. Help us to live out the principles you've given us, but also to trust in you for all the strength to the, for the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, then I, yeah, we got it on. Turn that on. There we go. Got it on. All right. Um, how many of you like to eat lemons? Yeah? All right. I like lemons too. You too. All right. Any, anybody? I mean, I don't eat them regularly, but do you like lemon juice if you squirt it in your mouth? Okay. Several of us. Imagine with me just for a moment that you took a lemon, a fresh lemon, and you, you, know, you cut it in half, and then you, <sighs> that beautiful citrusy smell. And now, then now imagine you, you know, bend your head back and you squeeze some of that perfectly fresh lemon juice into your mouth. And it's, it just has such a wonderful taste, right? Now, what if I told you, don't think about lemons. Don't think about yellow citrusy fruit. Don't think about lemons. If I keep telling you that, what will you be thinking about? Lemons. You're thinking about lemons, right? And so... Then imagine with me for a moment, how many, how many of you, what, what's your favorite kind of apple? Uh, Fuji. Fuji, Red Delicious, Caramel, Caramel Apple. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that, that's funny. <laughs> I never thought about that one. Um, anybody ever have Honeycrisp? Yes. Oh man, I love Honeycrisp. They're a little more expensive, but man, they taste so good. Um, you know, I think somebody said apple pie before, so caramel apple fits with that, I guess. Um, but I want you, so now what are we thinking about? Apples. And you stop thinking about? Lemons. lemons. Now, very simple illustration here. I met a man, actually, yeah, I won't say where he's from, but I met a man and he, he told us a story of the fact that he was, he was, I think he was, it was his girlfriend, I think it was his fiance, and whatever, for whatever reason, she decided she didn't want to be with him anymore. End, end of relationship, game over, right? And how do you feel when the person you're madly in love with and you think you're going to marry just tells you they don't want to be with you ever again? And it's done. There's no, there's no hope. It's done. Well, you feel absolutely horrible. And so he felt absolutely horrible. And his friend told him, real encouraging friend of his, he said, oh, you're just going to think about it all the time and that's all you're going to think about. It's just going to go over and over in your head. You know, real good encouragement from his friend, right? I mean, why even state the obvious, right? It doesn't help. But actually, it helped him because he thought, you know what? Because he, he must have known there's no hope for this relationship. It's not one of those things where we can patch it up. It's just done. And so after his friend told him, you're not going to be able to stop thinking about it, he decided, you know what? I am not going to think about it. And every time the thought came into his mind, he would choose to think about something else. And he said after a time, he was actually able to do it. Now, my point isn't that you should deny reality and just don't think about things. That, that, that's, not the benefit, that's not something that God wants us to do. But there are certain things that are... Maybe like, I'll get, okay, first I'll say, imagine you have a temptation. Your temptation, let's say your temptation is to overeat. And, there, and there's some, uh, we'll call it carob cake, right? Chocolate cake, whatever. And you have this sitting there, and you really, you, you really, you know, maybe you've had a piece and that should be the end, but you really feel like having more. 
you know? And so then you tell yourself, man, I shouldn't eat the cake. No, I shouldn't eat that cake. I shouldn't eat it. It tasted so good. I shouldn't eat it, though. I know I shouldn't eat it. It's not good for me. I'm struggling already. I shouldn't eat the cake. Thoughts work out actions, right? So if I, every time I'm tempted, cake is a simple illustration, but it could be the dirty things on the Internet. It could be you want to get angry and you're thinking about what someone said to you and you're going over and over. I shouldn't think about the fact that they they treated me. He treated me so bad. No, I can't think that way. But really, he shouldn't have treated me that way, right? You know, and so do you see what I'm saying? So if I tell myself, don't think about lemons, don't think about lemons, I am going to think about lemons. And thoughts will work out actions. You understand? So whenever we're tempted, whenever we have these things that we naturally go over and over and over, if we choose to think, don't think about that, we're going to think about it. But if instead we turn our minds to something better, you understand? We turn our mind away from the lemons and we turn them to the Word of God, right? We turn them away to these things. And now we begin, for instance, let's say, let's say you struggle with stress. And you think, man, I shouldn't be stressed but I got so much work to do, uh, but I shouldn't be stressed, you know, or whatever. And you keep thinking that it's not helping the situation. But then if you remember, didn't God say, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing, but it doesn't stop there. If you just thought about that, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. The text doesn't end with don't be anxious, right? Be anxious for nothing. It says, but in everything, and then it has three things, in everything by prayer, and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So what do those three things mean? So, number one, so be anxious for nothing. So you're anxious. Your anxiousness could be your struggle with temptation. Does that make sense? Your, your stress hormones are kicking in because you want to eat the food. You want to look at something dirty. You want to get angry at somebody. Your stress hormones are kicking in. But the Word of God says be anxious for nothing. But if you leave it there, you'll probably be anxious. But it says, but in everything, beginning with by prayer. So let's say I come to God and I say, and you should, you should bring it to God in prayer. Through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. What does that mean? Prayer means I bring it to God. Father, you know right now I'm stressed. You know right now I want to get angry at this person. Father, you know right now I want to look at something filthy on the internet. Father, you know right now I want to overeat. Whatever it is. So I'm bringing it to God. That's prayer. Is bringing something to God. Through communication with Him. Supplication. What does it mean to supplicate? To ask. So now I've already brought it to God. Father, you know I'm struggling with this. And now I need to ask Him for what? To help me to overcome. To give me the victory, right? And so, Father, you know I'm struggling with this. I need your strength because I don't have it. And so, Father, I am asking. You promised that I should be anxious for nothing. I I brought the situation to you. And I'm asking you, Father, to give me the victory. It says, by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Now, now what do I need to do? Father, I thank you so much that you are the one. That you promised in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory. 
So, Father, I thank you that you will take this away because you are the one with all power. You are the one that has the strength to help me to overcome. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. I brought it to God. I asked him. I supplicated. I asked God for strength, and I'm thanking him, and I'm trusting him that he is giving me the victory. So, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, oh yeah, no, I was going back to Philippians 4. Philippians 4 says what? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then it says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you get the point? God's word is so practical. It's not just some old dead book. It is a book that deals with the situations of our lives. You follow? And so God gives us a recipe on basically how to overcome. This is one aspect of it, that we bring it to God. We say, because listen, all temptation is anxiety. When we're in the stressful situation, we already saw that if we're going to overcome, we have to suffer. We have to suffer with Christ. And in that suffering, there's an anxiety that takes place in the heart. And God said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer... So we bring it to God. God, you know I'm struggling with anger right now. And Father, I need your strength to give me the peace that Jesus had when he was before Pilate. That love for those around him instead of having hatred and anger in return. And Father, I trust, thank you, and I thank you that you will give me the victory. It says when we do that and we actually believe it, it's more than just saying it like a magic trick, but when we actually believe it, it says he brings about a peace in our lives that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't even make sense that God could fill us with such a peace. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, can you repeat the verse? Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. And then the other one I, I quoted from was 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57 and 58, really. So... Honestly, I would, I would memorize those verses if I were you. 1 Corinthians 57 and 58, 15, 57 and 58, and then Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. And the Word of God is powerful. There's just no way around it. They did a test, true story, um, a scientific test with some monkeys. Where they come up with this stuff, I literally think there is just some, like, rascally scientist in this world. They're just, ra I don't mean all scientists are rascals, but I think some of them literally are. They're like, what do you think if we, what do you think if we got a fire hose, put some bananas up on the top of a pole with some monkeys, and then shot the monkeys off the pole with the fire hose? This is actually what they did. And so I'm just trying to imagine how they came up with this. Well, this is what they did. They put some bananas at the top, they, in a cage with monkeys. They put bananas at the top of a pole. And what would monkeys do if there's bananas at the top of a pole? They're going to go get them, right? And this is a true story. So they actually, the monkeys would start climbing up the pole, and they would sit there with a hose and push, knock them off the, off the pole. And then they would, you know, after a little bit, they'd try again, and push, they would shoot them off the, the pole. And I'm not saying this is a nice study. It's just a fact, and I read about it, and so I'm telling you about it. And so they did this over and over and over and over and over, and guess what the monkeys finally learned? Not to climb the pole. I mean, even an animal learns after a while, if you beat it hard enough, not to do something, right? Well, they did something fascinating. They took one of the monkeys out of the cage and replaced it with a monkey who had never been in the cage before. And so what do you think that new monkey decided to do? 
climb the pole. He doesn't know you're not supposed to climb the pole. So he starts climbing the pole, and they don't have the fire hose anymore. And as he starts climbing the pole, one of the, another monkey runs up to him and whoosh, pulls him back down. And the monkey's thinking, what? I'm going to get the bananas, right? And so he starts climbing again, and whoosh, a monkey grabs him and pulls him back down. And they pull him back down over and over and over and over. And after a while, he learns that you never climb the pole. Then they replaced the next monkey, not that one, but the next one, and they put another new one in, same thing happens with him. They go around and they finally replace every single monkey who had been shot off of the pole with a fire hose. Guess what happened? Then they put in a new monkey and he starts to climb the pole and guess what happens again? They run up to him and whoosh, they pull him back down. Guess what? None of the monkeys at this point have any idea why you're not supposed to climb the pole. But they keep pulling them down. And I think sometimes we do this in our families. Our family for years has just learned that we maybe put each other down, that we don't lift each other up. And maybe it's not our families. Maybe it's our friends. Maybe it could even sadly sometimes be people at church, whatever it could be. But we've learned to pull each other down. And the reality is we can learn that, no, we don't have to. Jesus wants to pull us up. Jesus wants to pull us out of our sins. Jesus wants to lift us up closer to him. But many times we sit and we pull each other down just because of the bad habits we've learned from maybe family, friends, coworkers, whatever it may be. And so we can learn that God actually can give us the victory. Many times people say, God can't give us the victory. That's impossible. And the fact is, it is impossible to gain the victory without God. Jesus had the same experience. He said, I can do what? He said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. So Jesus' strength had to come from reaching up to the Father, and he alone can pull him up. We pull each other down many times, but friends, we can be a blessing to each other by lifting each other up. And in our overcoming seminar, that's what we do with people. We encourage each other that when somebody struggles, when somebody falls, we don't bash them over the head and act like they're, you know, now you're lost because you did these things. No, we encourage them to get back on the path, right? And we should do that as friends, as church members, or with anybody that we're working with, that we can lift each other up instead of just choosing when somebody makes a mistake to tear them down, right? What did Jesus, you remember how Jesus, you know, when the woman was caught in adultery? She had just been caught in the very act, and, and Jesus just kicked some dust right in her face, right? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds almost like blasphemy to even say that. Because God doesn't treat us that way. God is willing to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So God wants to lift you up. He wants to give you the victory. And remember, it all takes place in the thoughts, right? It begins in the thoughts. Those thoughts work out actions. The repeated actions form habits and habits form character. And the main reason that people cannot change things in their life is because they try to change the behavior rather than the cause of the behavior. And what's the cause of the behavior? The thoughts. The thoughts are the cause of the behavior in our lives. Very simple. So we'll go forward a little bit. I'm going to tell you another example of frontal lobe damage in the results of a, of a actually this one's a newborn baby. So frontal lobe damage in the baby GK, they called baby GK, suffered bilateral frontal lobe damage in the first seven days of his life. From childhood to age 31, he had the typical characteristics of someone who had experienced 
frontal lobe damage. Well, what, what were the typical characteristics? Well, this child, as he grew, did not respond well to parental discipline. Always sought gratification of his immediate needs, never developed adequate friendships, blamed his difficulties on others, was irresponsible and tended to wander, was easily influenced by other deviant children, and was sexually promiscuous, and had an impairment of... Okay, oh, sorry, no, that was, that was it. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this list of things that baby GK grew up to be like, be honest with me, does this like look like the life of an average young American, yes or no? Could it be that young Americans, not that they were all dropped on their head at infancy, but their lifestyle is causing them to have impairment to their frontal lobe? According to this, does, would it seem so? Very much it seems so. And here are some of the effects of a compromised frontal lobe. There's an impairment of moral principle, because we already discovered that the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. Also, there's social impairment or a loss of love for the family. There's a lack of foresight. Their abstract reasoning is impaired. Actually, um, in ne Neil Nedley talks about this, that basically when our frontal lobe is uh, deficient, that one of the things he encourages people to do to strengthen in his depression recovery program is to read through the book of Proverbs every month, one chapter a day. Because uh, abstract reasoning, there's an aspect maybe of, maybe not exactly abstract reasoning, but when you read something in Proverbs, they're kind of complex sometimes. You read it and you're like, hmm, I don't know what that means. And so you actually have to try to think, what does this actually mean? And it's engaging your frontal lobe. So we can learn to strengthen this by spending time in God's Word, especially in some of the more difficult areas like the book of Proverbs. It's called the book of wisdom, right? So we can gain wisdom from that. And it also helps us along the way to learn the ways of God. We are told that there is a proverb for every situation in your life. Every situation. She tells us that. So for every situation you live in, there's a proverb for it. Um, mathematical understanding is diminished if you have a compromised frontal lobe. You have a loss of empathy, empathy and a lack of restraint. So we're going to go on. Um, now, let me jump forward just a minute. Let's see. We talked about some of the things. I wonder. Um, I think, is it your turn to come up with this with some of the uh, frontal lobe killers? Do you come up with that? Okay. Fadi is going to come up and tell us. We already looked at these, but we're going to go on past the, you know, drugs, lack of use, certain kinds of music, head injuries, and lack of nutrition. We're going to talk about um, what? She'll tell us. I don't even know. There you go. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Um, some legal drugs that damage the frontal lobe, and this might be obvious, but it's always good to go over these things that uh, seem obvious, right? One of them is alcohol, and here are some things that we can learn. It says, alcohol interferes with dopamine production and decreases activity of the frontal lobe of the brain. Any resveratrol-related benefits obtained through alcohol can also be received by drinking grape juice. The healthiest course of action is to steer clear of alcoholic beverages. So you see that we're told, um, or at least some wine companies will tell you, 
oh, you should drink uh, wine because it's good for your heart, right? That's with that resveratrol, it's an antioxidant. But where do you find that naturally? In the grape juice. So then you don't have to impair your frontal lobe, you don't have to kill your liver or your stomach or whatever else that alcohol does to you. You can have um, the benefits without it. But you see that it interferes with dopamine production and decreases activity of the frontal lobe. So you see right there, immediately, that's one of the things that it does. The World Health Organization estimates that risks linked to alcohol cause 25 million, no, 2.5 million, forgive me, 2.5 million deaths a year from heart and liver disease, road accidents, suicides, and cancer, accounting for 3.8% of all deaths. It is the third leading risk factor for premature death and disabilities worldwide. That's huge, um, alcohol. And some people think, well, if you use it moderately, well, just knowing that so many people are affected by it, is it worth using it moderately? No, it's not. Uh, it's a dangerous thing. And you'll hear tomorrow about how alcohol affected my family personally. We continue. Also, caffeine, we talked about it earlier. Uh, here are some more things that we can learn about how caffeine affects the frontal lobe. It says a study from John Hopkins showed that if you drink just two cups of coffee a day and quit, you will not only likely get severe withdrawal headaches, but you will feel as wiped out as someone undergoing chemotherapy for two to three days. Isn't that weird? Now, you think about this, because some people think, oh, well, I need the caffeine. This. If I stop eating a certain kind of food, do I feel that bad? Right? Do I feel like I'm so drained um, for two to three days, like I've gone through chemotherapy? If I stopped eating grapes, would that happen to me? No, it tells you something's really wrong with this stuff that it has such an effect on us when we withdraw from it. Uh, that, to me, is huge. We continue. It says, Bristol University researchers found that caffeine beverage drinkers develop a tolerance to both the anxiety producing and the stimulating effects of caffeine, meaning that it only brings them back to baseline levels of alertness, not above them. Okay, and, and this is the next slide will tell you what it means. It says, simply put, all the reported benefits of caffeine are present virtually all day in those that don't consume it. What happens is when you first try it, you feel like, whoo, this makes me feel like I'm alive, you know, because it gets your heart rate going, whatever. But each time you take it, you have to have more to get to baseline. So then after a while, just to feel alive and to be able to wake up in the morning, you need to continue to take more and more and more. And some people think, but it makes me concentrate more. It's like, I'm concentrating, I'm waking up, I'm doing this and that, and I'm not taking that stuff. So it tells you that you're starting to get to where it, you have to have more and more and more just to feel normal anymore, right? Which that's what other drugs do, right? You just need more and more and more to even feel like you're alive anymore. Um, one cup, and we saw this in the, the ad, right? Remember this? What, or the television, not the ad, the um, television uh, news clip, you know, on ABC, that the lady that went through the MRI and did, had a cup of coffee and then with, before and after what it did to her, and it, they said that one cup of coffee causes 40% decrease of blood flow to the brain. 
So no, we don't want to have a decrease of blood flow to the brain because that's where we're making our decisions, right? That's where the battle is. Also, nicotine is another one. And I, like I said, these are obvious, but they're good to go over. Nicotine smokers are less able to perform complex mental tasks than non-smokers. Okay, less able. In addition to short-term mental effects, smoking takes a toll on brain function over the long haul. Compared to non-smokers, smokers face double the risk of developing dementia. That's permanent significant loss of intelligence from Alzheimer's and other causes. And these are some medications uh, that can affect your mind. Now, mind you, of course we say here illicit, but some prescription drugs also cause um, or affect your mind. And now, if you're using some of these drugs that I'm about to list, all right, I'll just skip it. Chad says to just skip it. We're skipping it. All right, uh, here's a verse that is really encouraging for those of us, again, that are feeling like this is too much, you're, you know, what, whatever. Anyway, I just got a little distracted here. I'll just read the verse, sorry. First Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be what? Sober. God wants us to be sober-minded and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God wants to have wants us to have sober minds. So whatever we can do to improve the function of this mind that he has blessed us with would be a blessing. This is a PET scan. And what PET scans do is they measure the amount of energy your body is using or your brain is using for any particular activity. That's like the amount of glucose, you know, the energy, that the fuel that it's using. And you can see here that um, this is the frontal lobe, okay, that's facing this way. So on all of these, they're facing the frontal lobe. He, seeing words, where, that, where does that happen? In the occipital lobe. That's where the information is being processed, is in the back of your brain, the occipital lobe. Hearing words is in the parietal or temporal lobe. And then speaking words, see how much energy it takes to speak? Not much compared to hearing. So it's taking more energy for you to be listening to me than it is for me to be speaking the words. Isn't that interesting? Any wonder why things slip off our tongue so easily? Like, I didn't mean to say that, right? It's so easy. So we need to be mindful. Then, thinking about words, where is that happening? The frontal lobe. Look how much energy it takes, right? In the frontal lobe, thinking about words takes a lot of energy. Listen here, it says in Magnificent Mind at Any Age, this is what I was talking about, how much energy the brain takes. It says, even though the brain consists of only 2% of your body's weight, it uses about 25% of the calories you consume. So those people that are real brainiacs, you're using a lot of energy, right? So you need to make sure that you're feeding it right. And look at this here. Uh, it says 60% of the food energy a baby takes in goes to feed its brain. Isn't that interesting? 60% for a baby. How important when all of that is happening and, and the brain is developing that we're eating nutritiously for the baby as well. Um, so what, what do you think the brain 
desires, the frontal lobe in particular, since so much energy is taken in the frontal lobe in terms of fuel. What kind of food, what kind of fuel is the brain desiring? Complex carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates. The brain itself only stores about two minutes of glucose. It relies on the rest of the body to keep giving it the energy that it needs to continue. Um, complex carbohydrate. It says carbohydrates are used almost exclusively by the brain for optimal function. Nowadays, we're always told if you want to have a slim figure, what kind of diet are you supposed to eat? According to Hollywood, protein, low carb, you know, um, and, and that's not healthy, okay? You might lose weight, but it's not healthy. If you think about what's healthy for the brain, you will lose the weight, I promise you. Um, and and that, that's not just food, right? What have we been talking about this whole time? Exercise, drinking water, doing all these things. When you concentrate on what's good for this brain and how to keep it functioning, the rest of it will work out, okay? So we don't need to be grasping after the wind in terms of what Hollywood tells us, oh, you need to look like this and you need to do like that and whatever. If, if we're more concentrated on keeping the connection with God, you will have the health that this body needs. And it may look different on this body and another body, but you will have what this body needs. Amen? And that's for my sisters out there. All right, we continue. This is really interesting. This is white bread versus whole wheat, okay? The flour for both is made from wheat berries, which have three nutrient-rich parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. And um, we'll continue there. Whole wheat is processed to include all three nutritious parts, but white flour uses only the endosperm. When put head-to-head -head with whole wheat bread, white is a nutritional lightweight. Whole wheat is much higher in fiber, vitamins B6 and E, magnesium, zinc, folic acid, and chromium. In a 10-year Harvard study completed in 1994, men and women who ate high-fiber breads had fewer heart attacks and strokes than those whose tastes ran to bagels and baguettes. Okay, But look at this. This next slide is interesting. Simply switching from white to whole wheat bread can lower heart disease risk by what? 20% just by doing what? Switching the kind of bread you're eating, the grain, the carbohydrate. According to research from the University of Washington reported in the April 2, 2003 issue of the Journal of American Medical Association. So a lot of times when they're talking about these fake diets, they're telling you, oh, no carbohydrates. Well, it's like, yeah, most people eat that stuff that's called Wonder Bread, right? And you wonder what it is. You know, it's just like pasty white stuff. You add a little water to it, you can throw it on the wall and it'll stick there. That's not bread. That's not what Christ says, I am the bread of life. That doesn't give you life. It takes life away. And it shows here that just simply switching from that stuff to the complex carbohydrates that can sustain your blood sugar God has made these, these uh, wheat berries to sustain your blood sugar. Stripping them apart and using just one portion, the starchy portion, of course will give you these ups and downs in your blood sugar 
and make you all crazy and continue to crave because you haven't you don't have all the nutrition so you keep eating and eating and eating because you're not feeling full yet it's just white pasty stuff right so it's so important and that's why these studies are showing that eating them in the way that they were formed and and closer to nature is the best thing for our bodies um, Pretty much this slide, all it's telling us is that they remove all the nutrients, and by law, they have to bring them back in. A few of them, not all of them, and they only bring back um, like five of them. Only five have to be added back by law. There's so little fiber left after processing that you'd have to eat eight pieces of white bread to get the fiber in just one piece of whole wheat bread. So a lot of people say, well, it's expensive to buy the, the healthy bread. But if you're only having to eat one piece, it goes a lot further, right? So for the third day in the diet, we tell people to add whole grains. And start to mix it up. Don't just do the whole wheat. Those are just the studies I was showing you. But there's a lot of nice grains out there. Uh, millet, quinoa. Um, uh, what are some other ones? I can't, I'm stumped, right? Spelt. There you go, barley, oats, amaranth. Excuse me. There's a lot out there. We need to just switch it around. We've gotten in a rut of whole wheat, and uh, we, can, we can try other things. So that's what you eat for the third day of the modified fast, OK? Oh, have you guys heard this phrase? The whiter the bread, the quicker you're dead. Yes, some have heard that. It's kind of funny. So some are saying, oh, Fadia, here's another thing you're trying to you know, get us to do, whatever. This is such an encouraging verse. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Listen to this. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to who? Those who have been trained by it. Huh, what does that tell us? That good things don't come to us naturally. We are born not liking good things, right? And so we have to be trained to like the good things in life. And what I mean by that is the healthy things, the harder things, like Chad was talking about earlier. Jesus learned to be obedient through the things he suffered, right? This is just the life we live in, and, and this is the world we live in. And Jesus went through it, and he understands what it means to suffer through this flesh, right? And so it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true? It just seems like, oh, this is so hard. What's it worth? But it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And remember that. I don't naturally love, like when you read the um, love chapter in 1 Corinthians, do you ever feel like, that's not me? I don't think I've ever loved anything like that before, right? And you realize, I have to grow into that love. It doesn't come naturally. I have to grow into it. All right, here's some encouraging things about eating some healthy stuff. What I recommend is learn about your foods, and as you learn about them, you start to like them a little more while you eat them. So here's one. Take blueberries. According to Jim Joseph, a neuroscientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Boston, blueberries zap free radicals, which are highly reactive atoms that can damage tissue. Uh, blueberries can also reverse aging, enhance cognition, and this is a kicker, cause new neurons to grow if you're a rat. 
So sometimes they have good uh, animal studies. In one animal study, Joseph developed a series of motor skills tests that he and his associates called the Rat Olympics. Rats had to walk balance beams and stay upright during a log rolling task. Those that had been raised on blueberry rat chow did better than those that hadn't, leading Joseph to conclude that blueberries were actually able to reverse motor deficits in these aging animals. Isn't that interesting? So a lot of older people, you know, they start to lose balance. Would be a good thing to have. Blueberries, right? More remarkably, when mice that had been genetically altered to express Alzheimer's were put on the blueberry diet, um, they did not experience memory loss. Huh. Does that make sense? When you get Alzheimer's, one of the side effects is memory loss. And when these rats were given the blueberry rat chow, they didn't express memory loss. Joseph's work has shown some similar benefits from walnuts, which contain alpha-linolenic acid and essential omega-3 fatty acid. Uh, a study was also done in Loma Linda, California, with pomegranates, and they found the same thing, the antioxidant. They helped with the whole um, the issue of memory loss with Alzheimer's. So pomegranates, blueberries, uh, walnuts, things that have omega-3 fatty acids are very good for the brain. So how many of us like blueberries now? Yeah, that's right. So it's good to learn about your foods. It actually makes you enjoy them more while you're eating them if you know good, positive things. Now this next slide I'm gonna show you is about, um, it's called Seven Weeks of Sobriety. It's a doctor whose son died from alcoholism, but she didn't give up on this research. She wanted to continue to help people. And so this is some of the things that she came up with. So as a number of studies have shown that rats can be transformed from teetotalers, that's one who abstains from alcohol, into alcoholics by taking the B vitamins out of their diets. Their preference for alcohol gradually disappears as the vitamins are restored. When vitamin levels return to normal, the rats refuse alcohol and drink only water. Isn't that interesting? You remove a certain vitamin out of the body, you start to crave things right, that you shouldn't be craving, and alcohol was one of these for the rats. But as soon as they started replenishing the vitamins, then the uh, desire for alcohol went away and they drank the water. Ever wonder why we crave things we shouldn't, right? We could be lacking nutrients. Maybe we're eating things that lack nutrition. You know, in this brain, you saw the, the PET scan, how much energy it takes to keep these brains going and if we're not eating the proper things, of course, anxiety will increase, uh, negative thoughts, uh, lustful thoughts, whatever it be, you realize how much of a connection there is on what we're feeding these bodies and how the mind works. Here's another one. It says, no matter what you eat, if you want to maintain a sharp memory, you should strive for a diet that helps keep your belly fat down. A study of more than 6,500 people published in the journal Neurology showed that people who were overweight and had a large belly were 2.3 times as likely to develop dementia as those with normal weight and belly size, while those who were obese and had a large belly were 3.6 times as likely. So keeping your belly fat down is good for the brain as well. According to a 2008 study by the National Sleep Foundation, American adults now get two hours less sleep per night than, in the, than the average in the 1960s. 
So two hours less. You think, oh, that's not a big deal. Okay, let's see what it does to our appetite. It says missing out on your Z's not only puts you in a mental fog, it also triggers a constellation of actual metabolic, metabolic changes that may lead to weight gain. A lack of shut-eye harms your waistline because it affects two important hormones that control appetite and satiety, leptin and ghrelin, says Kristen Knudsen, PhD, a research associate specializing in sleep and health at the University of Chicago Department of Medicine. We continue. It says, according to a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, people who slept only four hours a night for two nights had what? 18% decrease in leptin. And what's leptin? A hormone that signals that the brain, signals the brain that the body has had enough to eat. So what is leptin to? It tells you you're satisfied, right? And a 28% increase in ghrelin, a hormone that triggers hunger. Do you see what happened? When you had a lack of sleep, your hormone that tells you you're satisfied went down. The hormone that tells you you're hungry went up when you have a lack of sleep. Compared with those who got more rest, the result, sleep-deprived study, study volunteers reported a 24% boost in appetite. Short sleep can also impair glucose metabolism and over time set the stage for type 2 diabetes, Knudsen notes. When we're exhausted, we hunger for just about everything in sight, especially if it's sugary or high in carbs. And that's the empty carbs. Interesting. Have you ever noticed when you stay up, let's say, like most Avenus, you stay up Saturday night? And what do you feel like eating Saturday night? Pizza and ice cream. Right? Sugar and high in carbs, pizza and ice cream. Isn't that interesting? Um, when you stay up late, do you ever feel like having a salad? <laughs> Hardly ever. Interesting. Do you see the connection here with all the laws of health that God has given us? That they're connected, right? Um, if you've broken one, you've broken them all kind of thing, right? You realize how they're all connected. You have a lack of sleep. It affects your food. It affects what you're eating. And then what you're eating affects your mind. And then it affects your relation. I mean, on and on, you see all of these things. And if, if you're not feeling as well, you don't feel like going outside and getting the fresh air and the exercise and the sunshine. Everything's connected. God has made these bodies to be connected that way. So when we're, we're craving things and we just think, oh, it's me. I, I'm, that's just the way I am. I struggle. Other people can do it. I can't. But you realize everything's connected, and when you're getting a lack of sleep, you're going to start craving things that you shouldn't be craving because these hormones are all going out of whack. We continue also about lack of sleep and on the brain. Why does poor sleep zap willpower? Okay. For starters, sleep deprivation impairs how the body and brain use glucose, their main form of energy. When you're tired, your cells have trouble absorbing glucose from the bloodstream. This leaves them underfueled and you exhausted. With your body and brain desperate for energy, you'll start to crave sweets or caffeine. But even if you try to refuel with sugar or coffee, your body and brain won't get the energy they need because they won't be able to use it efficiently. This is bad news for what? Self-control. One of the most energy expensive tasks your brain can spend in its limit in spend its limited fuel on, right? The brain uses a lot of energy, 
to do the thing, especially the frontal lobe, and so that's where self-control comes in. But if you're not getting your Zs, your body can't utilize the glucose well. It says your prefrontal cortex, that energy-hungry area of the brain, bears the brunt of this personal energy crisis. Sleep researchers even have a cute nickname for this state. It says mild prefrontal dysfunction. Shortchange your sleep and you make up, uh, and you wake up with what? Temporary Phineas Gage-like damage to your brain. Huh, just from sleep deprivation. And those of you that were here for the first session realized that Phineas Gage got frontal lobe damage because he had a rod going through his head. Um, studies show that the effects of sleep deprivation on your brain are equivalent to being mildly intoxicated, a state that many of us can attest is little for self-control. Isn't this interesting stuff, how it's all connected? Um, God is good. He gives us remedies for all of this, but Chad's going to come up and talk a little bit more about sugar. All right. This, this I find kind of fascinating. The, a young boy was eating intense amounts of salt, and his family became kind of troubled because he, they caught him. He was just licking all the salt off the crackers. And one day they came into the kitchen and they found him. He was taking a salt shaker and he was just dumping salt in his mouth. And so they became alarmed. And so they, they brought him to the doctor and they put him in the hospital actually. And they took him off his high salt regimen and he died. What they didn't know is that his adrenal glands had been impaired. Somehow they had maybe shut down the function, wasn't working well. And one of the effects of the adrenal glands, they help regulate salt in the body. And while, when they're shut down, you, need, you can need intense amounts of salt. So they took him off of it and he died. They did studies with rats and they shut down the adrenal glands of the rats. And the result was, obviously, they ended up craving salt. They would eat intense amounts of salt. They would put it in their cage. They would eat a lot of it. And it would keep them alive. And then what they did is they had salt in one spot and they had refined sugar in another spot. When the mice would start eating the refined sugar, somehow, some way, their brain would stop craving the salt and so they'd stop eating it. And then guess what happened? They died. Now, I'm not saying this is proof, but this just makes me wonder. Could it be, think about this, when you, when you, okay, if you drank a can of pop, we say pop in the Midwest, maybe soda, whatever you call it, down south, you know they call all pop Coke. Coke. All kind of, you know, what kind of Coke do you want? But beside the point, but you get the point. So when you're drinking, when you're drinking pop, um, what happens is, imagine you drink it, and do you feel like after a can of pop eating some lettuce after that? <laughs> no, you don't. And could it be that when we, when we consume a lot of, uh, refined sugars that we maybe don't crave what our body actually needs. Maybe like the mice, it begins to shut down the craving of the good things. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that's a fact, but it makes me wonder because I know personal experience. I, I grew up eating junk food like crazy. I didn't know about the health message, had no clue, never heard of the health message. I didn't think it mattered what you put in your body. As long as it had calories, that's all you needed. And that's what I did. And I have felt absolutely horrible by the time I was 19 years old. I looked healthy, but I felt like trash, really. I felt horrible. Um, but the point being, could it be that if you are eating unhealthy food, like a lot of sugar and a lot of empty carbs all the time, 
your body won't crave what it actually needs. And so notice this. They're discovering that, they're, that sugar and mental illness, that there's a surprising link. It's taken from Psychology Today. It says, notice British psychiatric researcher Malcolm Pete had conducted a provocative cross-cultural analysis of the relationship between diet and mental illness. His primary finding may surprise you. A strong link between, higher, between high sugar consumption and the risk of both depression and schizophrenia. So high amounts of sugar can correlate with high, you know, levels of depression and schizophrenia. It doesn't mean that you eat sugar, you're depressed, and you, you now become a schizophrenic. But many times you will notice that somebody who is depressed will not or will be eating a lot high amounts of sugar in their diet. That's one of the aspects of it. We're going to talk, I'm going to share with you three quick tips for depression. Three quick tips for overcoming depression. I don't mean this is everything. If you really want to know better how to overcome depression, uh, there's a program right here, that, and I'm, I don't work for them. I don't make many money for this, but here at uh, Weimar, they actually have a program, uh, the Depression Recovery Program, and it's probably one of the best programs, if not the best program on the planet for overcoming depression. It is worth going through if you, if you know somebody who really, really struggles with depression. But nevertheless, we're going to share with you some three quick tips. And if you implement these things, many people would be able to at least feel much better. I don't mean it will fix it for everybody. But three quick tips. Number one is exercise. This is amazing. You say, what exercise? Come on. Consider the effects of exercise. This is taken once again from Psychology Today. Consider the effects of psycho uh, not psychology. Consider the effects of exercise. Even moderate physical activity like brisk walking, quick walking three times a week, has been shown in two landmark studies to fight depression as effectively as Zoloft. What is Zoloft? It's a depression medication, right? So just exercising, which was brisk walking three times a week, can be as effective as taking a drug for depression. Do you see, once again, what we're discovering is that the laws of health help us feel better. So many times we think of living a healthy lifestyle as legalism. God didn't give them to us to make us legalists. He gave them to us to help us live a better life, right? And if you don't want to live you know, healthier, God's not going to force you to. But if you want to follow it, if you follow the eight laws of health, we'll actually feel better, right? He's giving it us to give us the, the best shot at feeling healthy and, and having a healthy mind in life. So it is effective. Going for fast walks three times a week is as effective as taking depression medication for depression. Simply put, exercise changes your brain. It enhances the function of dopamine-based circuits that mediate our experience of pleasure along with our ability to initiate activity. So it, the feel-good hormones in the body kick in when we exercise. Exercise is so important. As we said, it sharpens your focus. It helps you concentrate better. It, it strengthens your frontal lobe, literally. It is so important. It is not one great law of health, eating right. Many times we kind of come to that conclusion. There's one great law of health, like coming to the master and saying, what is the greatest law of health? It is eating right. Many times we feel that way. That's not what we're taught. Actually, it's a, it's a package. The eight laws of health are a package. So exercise is so very important. Omega-3 can help also with depression. We read here, well, before we even go into that, what is omega-3? It's a fatty acid, and this uh, can help line the, uh, what do we call them? The, uh, 
the myelin sheath, like the uh, through your, you know, in your brain, kind of like covering the circuits in a uh, computer, having little uh, pieces of rubber around them to keep the impulses going. And so omega-3 can be found in what? Flax seeds, grinding up some flax seeds, putting them on your oatmeal or your granola or whatever. Uh, you could also use walnuts, even almonds have it. Even whole grain bread has it. So what does omega-3 do? What's that? Chia seeds, that's another one. Omega-3 neurological function is also critically affected by diet. For example, a deficiency of omega-3 fatty acids, which are key building blocks of brain tissue, has been strongly linked to depressive illness, in, in part because omega-3 fatty, uh, fatty acids or fats facilitate the brain's use of feel-good neurochemicals such as serotonin and dopamine. Omega-3s also serve as raw material for the body's construction of anti-inflammatory hormones, which help calm the cerebral inflammation that often characterizes depression. So taking these things, adding these things to your diet can be very beneficial. Another thing that I know is important because I lived in Iceland for a year, and almost everybody, forgive me Icelanders who may listen to this later, um, almost everybody feels depressed in the winter in Iceland, even if they don't know it. We could tell when we were there. I felt depressed living in Iceland in the winter. It's extremely dark. And I decided that if I ever went back to Iceland, I would buy one of the lamps, or I would bring one of the lamps with me, I should say, that help you, you know, you put it, uh, they're, they're, they're called sad lamps, seasonal affective disorder lamps. If you struggle with depression, and especially in the winter, I would encourage you to buy one. It is worth the money. I use one after Iceland. I've noticed that ever since I lived in Iceland, I feel down in the winter. I don't know that I ever noticed it before that, but it was so dark that it kind of affected me, maybe in the long term. But so I use one of these lights now in the winter. It's very, very beneficial. And so we read about it here. It says bright light exposure re represents yet another proven strategy for altering brain chemistry. This is scientific, this is not, you know, quackery. Specialized light receptors in the retina connect to circuits deep in the brain that regular, regulate the circadian rhythm. And sunlight, which is over a hundred times brighter than typical indoor lighting, is the prime stimulator of the eye's photoreceptors. It triggers a cascade of neurochemical reactions that help keep the body clock in sync. We go on to read, it says, on the other hand, Prolonged light deprivation leads to depressive disruptions in biological rhythms that govern sleep, appetite, energy, and mood. Fortunately, regular bright light exposure, either by the sunlight or specially designed light boxes, can restore healthy circadian function to the brain. Over a dozen published studies support its efficacy in the treatment of depression. Uh, you can find out about these lights on drnedley.com. Um, you know, he, he talks about them there, or at least they, they have them there. Very, very beneficial. You can get them on Amazon.com or whatever, but it's, they're, they're very, very beneficial. You implement those three things and many people will be helped. I don't mean, there's more to it than that. You can find out about that with uh, Neil Nedley's depression recovery program or depression the way out. Very important things. Now, we are going to close with this for our message just now. Um, let's see here real quickly. Because we have about two minutes. I'll look at this and then we will close. Let's see. Uh, 10,000 Lux, right? 10, Lux, that's right. You have to get one that has 10,000 Lux. You may not know what a Lux is, and I probably don't either, but it has to do with how bright it is. And you want, yeah, look it up. You can find it on, like I said, he will talk more about it, Nedley. But yeah, you want it to be at least 10,000 Lux. And I think that's basically what you generally find out there also. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with this. 
Um, Joe Cruz is an old minister, and he tells a story, a personal story. He was on a plane back in the day when you could smoke on airplanes. We can hardly believe that now, but we're too young, most of us, to remember that. But you could, it's like getting in a tin can and everybody starts smoking, right? But nevertheless, that's what they used to be able to do. And he was sat down on a plane, and a young man was sitting next to him. And, and the, the, he was looking up where it said no smoking. And then the moment the light turned off for no smoking, the kid pulled out his pack of cigarettes, and he, he lit them up, you know, and uh, had a cigarette. And Joe Cruz is sitting next to this young man, and he says, uh, hey, have you ever thought about quitting? And the young man said, thought about it. Man, I, I think about it all the time. I hate this stuff. I, I just can't quit. And he said, well, I just happened to put on seminars about overcoming uh, smoking. Would you mind if I share some, some things with you? And the young man said, sure, yeah, go ahead. And so Joe Cruz, you know, he, he reached into his bag and he, he pulled out his Bible and he started flipping um, to 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. And the young man who happened to be a Baptist, he said, oh, no, no, I tried that and it didn't work. And he said, really, it didn't work. And then what Joe Cruz did is he, he said, do you mind if I share with you just one passage? Is that, is that okay? He said, okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And he read to him 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57 and verse 58. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So it begins by saying, thanks be to God, which gives us the victory. The victory is a gift from God. It's not just from these healthy principles. These healthy principles make it easier to find the victory. But he said, Joe asked him, you know, the text says that God has given you the victory. He said, did you believe the last time that you quit smoking that God gave you the victory? And what do you think the response of the young man was? No. And he challenged him. He said, the next time that you, you come to God and, and ask for the victory, you have to believe. Believe that God has given you the victory. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. I, I quoted it last night at the meeting, which says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, or as well as unto the Hebrews. But the word preached did not profit them. It didn't profit the Hebrews, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So the word of God is preached to us, but it does us no good if we don't believe by faith that God will fulfill it in our lives. Does that make sense? And so Joe challenged the young man that the next time you go to God and ask for the victory, that you will believe that he gives you the victory. Because I don't know about if you're like me. Have you ever felt like you, you come to God and you're, you're trying to overcome a sin and you're like, Father, help me to overcome this. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, I'm probably going to go do it again in like an hour. None of you obviously have had that, but, you know, just people like me, you know, it's shame on me. But the point is, sometimes we feel that way. Like, I'll probably go back to this tomorrow or whatever. And I've felt that way before. But when we come to God and we are not trusting in ourselves, the fact is, without God, I will go back to it. But through the strength of Jesus Christ, He can, if I trust in Him and His power, He can give me the victory. Do you believe that? That's what the Word of God says if we trust in His Word. And I want to challenge you with one last thing before we go. I have a friend, and I'll try not to say his name, but many times when I tell the story, I say his name on accident. 
but he told a story, a true story. He was working at Target. We had a ministry together, and uh, several of us. There were the whole team of us, and we we were working. And um, the ministry lost its funding, so we all had to you know find our own funding and basically go to work making money. And so he went to work at Target. And there were young ladies at Target that were quite attractive. And since he, he, he's a brother, and he's an attractive brother, and uh, the girls at work noticed him, and, you know, he, by nature, you know, the sons of God noticed that the daughters of men, that they are fair, you know, and this happened there, you know. And um, so he's in this situation, and the young ladies became interested in him, and he was struggling because he knew these girls were digging on him. And... Um, and he, he told us, now this brother, he comes from a, a, maybe a Baptist background or something. And this was his, he was telling my wife and myself this story. So he wasn't ashamed. He told us, this, this brother, he prays more than any human being I've ever met. At least that I know of. Because every single conversation he begins, almost every conversation I should say, he begins with the words, I was talking to the Father. I was talking to the Father. They, meaning, all he does seemingly is talks to the Father. And so he says, I was talking to the Father. And he was telling us this story. And he says, I was talking to the Father. And I was saying, Father, I'm struggling with these girls at work. He said, Father, these girls are fine. <laughs> and I, I laughed because I thought, man, I've never talked to God like that before. You know? <laughs> and he said, I'm struggling. These girls are fine. And he said, Father, I know. I know that if I get with one of these girls at work, I'm going to receive the mark of the beast. And that's what he, that was his prayer to God. Now, number one, I've never thought about it that way, right? But number two, it hit me as he's saying these things. I laughed because it was humorous to me the way he prayed to God. But then I thought... I don't really bring my issues to God. I, I'm so ashamed of my things. I like don't pray to God honestly because I, I think I don't want... It's almost like God, I don't want... God, help me not to sin. Right? Like, I'm not being honest with God because I think if God knew what I thought, he would, be, he would think that's terrible, right? Do you realize God already knows what you think? And maybe if we bring our temptations to God as they are. Now, I'm not saying get into gory, nasty details and meditate and meditate on your sin. Not at all. We've already talked about that. But if we bring our, our real sins and we're not afraid to come to God just as we are, and we come to God with our real temptations and our real trials, but we do, just like we said earlier, we come to Him by prayer and, what was the second one? Supplication, which is bring it to God. God, I need your help. I can't overcome this. And what was the third one? Thanksgiving. And thanksgiving. And with that thanksgiving, we're actually believing that He has given us the victory. If we truly believe it, we can be like Abraham when it talks about Him in Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 22. When it tells us that Abraham staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief. He didn't stagger through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, believing that what he had promised, he was all able also to perform. So Abraham believed that God could, could accomplish this. And the Bible tells us then that it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Abraham found the victory because he believed that God could fulfill his word. And if we believe with all of our hearts, not that I can do it, but that God can fulfill it in me, he will give me the victory. Does that make sense? Yes or no? So I want to challenge you to not only come to God with his word, but come through prayer and supplication. That means asking God to, give, to help you or give you, or in this case, give you the victory. And number three, thanksgiving. And God will bring a peace that surpasses understanding, and he will give you the victory if 
you b believe and trust in his power. Let us close. We'll go on with two more messages tomorrow, and then we will be done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone, even though we're going to go eat right after this. But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Father, we need your word. We need to live. We need to learn to live by your word. We need to learn to trust in you and thank you and believe that, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory. Father, may we trust in your victorious hand because your arm is not shortened that it cannot save. You have strength in your arm that you can lift us up out of the mire, out of the filth that we have been thinking about, out of the lifestyle that we have lived. You can and are willing to give us the victory if only we would believe. But Father, many times we are like that father of the, of the child, the demon-possessed child. And Father, may we learn to say, Father, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. We need you, Father, because we don't have the strength. And when we think we have the strength, that's proof positive that we don't have the strength. May we learn to cling to you in all of our trials, in all of our temptations. May we speak to you. May we come honestly before your throne. As it says there, in Hebrews, as it tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace and find mercy to help in the time of need, Father. May we come boldly to you, speaking to you as a friend. Thank you that you know the filth we thought about, and you still love us. And you want to you want to pull those things away from us if we're willing to bring them to you. And you want to fill us with your loving character. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.